Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I would like to bring out onto the stage America's favorite ex-nun, skateboard riding, houseboat dwelling, nurturing, sweet, adorable, thoughtful, thought-provoking, anti-racist comic, Miss Kelly Dunham. From Rococo Punch and iHeartRadio, this is The Turning. I'm Erica Lance. There are still four episodes left this season, but today we have a bonus for you. It's a little different. So, uh, like most of you, I used to be a nun. Uh, Very relatable. That's very relatable in stand-up comedy to get up and start to talk about how you used to be a nun. And people, you know, like sometimes in straight clubs, people will be like, oh, yeah, whatever, Sister Mary Bulldyke. But um, I used to be a nun with the outfit and everything. Uh, You know Kelly Dunham from previous episodes. She's a former sister whose mistress told her she walked like her shoulders were angry. But there's so much more to Kelly's story. All these twists and turns. Some of my happiest childhood memories were learning words. I remember asking my mom, what what does ambivalent mean? She goes, well, when you feel like you both love something and maybe don't love it so much all at once. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly how I feel about you. One of our producers, Emily Foreman, talked with Kelly about her life, before the Missionaries of Charity and after, about her faith, about her comedy. So um, I just want to go back, 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 yeah. back, back. Uh, what's the first joke you ever told? But mostly about her complicated relationship with her mom. So I'm the youngest of seven. Um, my mom had had six other kids with as many alcoholic husbands, which I think is really impressive to find that one or two, but a number of alcoholics. Um, sometimes we just have our types, which, uh, you know, when you think about, like, okay, so what the thought process, like, you know, my last five marriages to alcoholics ended in financial ruin, but uh, I've got the right alcoholic this time. <laughs> so I really I appreciate my mom's level of hope. So That's a rural Wisconsin accent you hear in Kelly's voice. She grew up there. Hard work and not talking about feelings was the family code. So was Dale Carnegie, the author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was an incredibly popular book. And Kelly's dad made the book's philosophy part of life at home. Well, first, my dad would frequently, um, mornings, he would come down. We had to be sitting at the table at 6 a.m. 
And he would slap his hand on the table and say, act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. And most people are just about as happy as they make up their mind they're going to be. Which he would attribute to Dale Carnegie and sometimes to Abraham Lincoln. Although I've since heard that it was Dale Carnegie quoting Abraham Lincoln. But it doesn't sound like Abraham Lincoln because Abraham Lincoln had clinical depression. I bet he did not say that most people are just about as happy as they make up their minds they're going to be in the middle of the Civil War. You know, I have a feeling that's not true. But... It's a good story anyway. <laughs> Can you imagine? No! <laughs> Kelly says her dad would run Dale Carnegie days. And if you weren't following the B-positive ethos, you'd have to go to bed early. She says there were a lot of rules like that. He was strict. But the first time Kelly made her dad laugh, she knew she'd found an important tool. You could say her comedy career started in that moment. Being funny was like both a way to deflect things and a way to have positive attention. Hmm. So, Whose attention were you hoping to capture? I mean, maybe my mom's. Like, hearing my mom laugh was really a nice, nice thing, you know. I mean, also because my mom had a hard life. She had all these kids. She had, like, these useless husbands of varying degrees. You know, she had a hard life, so I wanted her to, I don't know, I wanted her to be able to laugh, you know. When you were a kid, were you aware of life being hard for her then? Only glimpses of it, especially when I was younger. Um, I think her marriage to my dad also deteriorated as a, uh, as time passed. But she was, I really don't think I saw her without her makeup till I was like in third or fourth grade. Like she was always perfectly made up and perfectly put together. You know, she's a person who, that was important to her and she really maintained um I don't know if it's a facade. She also didn't want us to be, like, frightened. And, you know, she wanted us to feel secure, I think. So I think that I didn't necessarily know it. I maybe felt it somewhere because I was a a very sensitive kid. Um, So what my parents needed at that time, they needed, like, a cheerful, very Midwestern kid, right? What they got was me. And I came into the world screaming as a fully formed, whining, coastal, sensitive queer. (laughs) Uh, uh, I was the kind of kid that um, when it rained, do you know why I would always miss the bus when it rained? Because I would be picking up the worms off the pavement and putting them back on the grass so they wouldn't get run over. Now that's kind of, like in a city, that's like, okay, maybe there's 20 Did you believe in God as a little kid? Yeah, um, very much so. In fact, I can remember, there's a uh, Bill Gaither song. It's God loves to talk to little boys while they're fishing. It's a very sweet song, and I can remember my mom used to play it, and I was, you know, thought of myself more as a little boy than a little girl. But I would go to, like, one of the ponds, you know, and, uh, like, just take a stick with a string on it and, like, throw it in there, and I was like, okay, now God's going to talk to me. Well, I guess not out loud, okay. (laughs) But um, I have this um, memory of my grandmother when we were staying with her, she and my grandpa built a cottage on Torch Lake. It's this beautiful lake in northern Michigan that hmm. um, has, like, this crystal blue water. So it's spring-fed. Anyway, so we'd go and stay with them during parts of the summer. And um, one time I was sleeping in the room where my grandma was, because, you know, there's a lot of kids there, so we were all, like, kind of doubled up. And I was sleeping in the room with my grandma, and I guess she couldn't sleep. And so she was praying aloud about all of us. And then I remember she came to me, and I was like, oh, i got to lay really still. And, um, you know, she was praying for me. Like, oh, you know, help Kelly to know how much Kelly Sue, that's my family, calls me. 
help Kelly Sue to know how much you love her and some other stuff too. I don't remember the specific of it, but I was like, whatever happens, my grandmother's really praying for me, so maybe I'll be okay, you know? That was like probably when I was eight or nine. Um, Were you worried you weren't going to be okay? Well, I think there was like, obviously I didn't fit in with my family, right? I was like, my parents really tried hard with the gender stuff. Like I was so clearly like a little boy growing up, you know? Um, And they tried really hard, but also like the world was against that, you know? Even now the world is against that. So doing better, but. hmm. Yeah. And also they were worried for me. Like I think they thought that the world was going to crush me, you know? Hmm. But they just didn't know what to do. It was like, who gave it? You know, it was like somebody gave them a wolverine to, you know, to race. (laughs) What do we feed a wolverine? We don't know. (laughs) And so so you moved from Wisconsin to Florida. um, Mm -hmm. And at this time, what's what's your faith situation? So my mom um, wasn't, you know, when we were little, was not a Christian. But she uh, became a born-again Christian. And then when we moved to Florida... I went to, my mom sent us to a Christian school, um, and everyone was like, oh, okay, like, this is a queer kid in the making, let's see what we can do. And I got actually really involved in my church, and, you know, I would say that I was interested in what God wanted for me in my life, and I felt like, oh, well, there, if there's a God, there must be some reason for me, you know. I don't really know what it is, but there must be, like, some reason that I exist and there's something I'm supposed to do. When I was in high school and most of my peers were drinking Zima, it was the 80s, and giving each other what I now know to be was horrible blowjobs. I was attending church three times a week, wearing a No Surfing in Hell t-shirt, And asking complete strangers, excuse me, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? I was a big bananas born-again Christian, and my mom was a big bananas born-again Christian, so that made her really happy. Except for I was also a big, huge, lifelong tomboy, and that made her very sad. One day, Kelly came home and found a note from her mom. It said, this sounds like something you would love and there was a glossy brochure for a missionary training program, the Lord's Boot Camp. Kelly looked at all the pictures of smiling teenagers and thought, Oh my God, this looks like something I would love. When I arrived at the Lord's Boot Camp, it was essentially an unimproved Florida wetlands. And there was, we washed our clothes by hand in sulfur water we pumped. And also... The place that we were supposed to, like, wash up, they called it uh, God's bathtub, (laughs) was just this little area of the swamp that was attached to another area of the swamp with this tiny little drainage ditch, and in the other area of the swamp were two alligators. (laughs) When we questioned our leaders about it, they were like, now, do you really think that those alligators are going to eat 500 teenagers? And I don't really think any of us thought they were going to eat 500 teenagers. (laughs) But doesn't even one seem like a lot? One of the main features of the camp was an obstacle course. They'd run it at 5 a.m. every morning. There was a series of physical challenges based on biblical themes, all designed to help them become better disciples. 
The last obstacle in the obstacle course was just called the wall, and it was a series of walls. Uh, and they each were painted with something we would have to get over in order to effectively serve Jesus. It started <laughs> with lust, and then pride, and then gluttony. And the last wall was sexual confusion. When they weren't running an obstacle course, they took classes on how to tie steel, lay bricks, run power tools, even mix concrete by hand, all in the service of learning how to build God's kingdom. I was having a fantastic time. (laughs) It was an entire summer of being a tomboy. And I returned home with this newfound zeal, also with a new haircut. I had a spiral perm, uh, and I had also attempted to bleach my hair surfer blonde with actual bleach. Which meant by the end of the summer, I couldn't even get a comb through it. So one of my fellow team members uh, took a razor and trimmed off almost all the hair on the sides and a lot of the hair on top, which, of course, leaving me a rat tail in back. And I looked fantastic. (laughs) When I walked onto my mom's front porch, dragging my stinky backpack, I said, Mom, don't I look like a new person in Christ? And she said... You look a lot the same. So the teen missions thing is like a general evangelical thing, but it was being used as like a de facto conversion camp. Like my mom had hoped that I would come home, you know, changed. I mean, they had these classes on uh, like from Grubby to Grace and God's Gentleman, which now I realize were like gender appropriateness classes. It was like, you know, just like the world's toughest summer camp. It was like, it was like if the missionaries of charity ran a fucking summer camp. That's what it was like. So who did she want you to be? I don't know. Maybe her, you know, like, I think she was worried. She, she never thought of me as like a masculine female. She thought of me as like an ugly female. Right. And my mom was a very beautiful person. She was a very attractive person. And that helped her in life. She knew how to use it. She knew how to use that attractiveness. And it was her kind of, also her kind of her shtick, you know? See, and I can remember watching my mom uh, put on her makeup her whole life. Like, I've watched her put on her makeup and talked to her while she put on her makeup. I mean, even the smell of makeup, like, makes me think of my mom, you know? And so what were you searching for then in joining the MCs? Like, I, you know, I was looking for a life that made sense. And what did your mom think of you joining? Um, I think, you know, she wanted me to have health insurance, you know? Like, so she was a little bit like... Okay, you know. So you already know Kelly joined the MCs and it didn't work out. But what did her life look like after she left? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. 
as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Kelly was incredibly impressed by the missionaries of charity when she first encountered them. She admired their hard work, and she thought she'd found her community. She converted to Catholicism, joined the order, but found she wasn't welcomed like other sisters. Maybe some of it was her sense of humor. Maybe it was her appearance or her angry shoulders. One sister described her as scary. And in the end, not fitting in took a toll on her physically. She left, flunked out, as she puts it. Yeah, I was so sad when I left. You know, because I was like, all right, well, do you guys think this is working out? And they're like, let us think about it. No. You know what I mean? Like everyone else that left, they were like begging them to stay. Not me. They were like, Bye. And um, I remember my mom was with my sister when she picked me up. She was like, you seem like you're grieving. Like, that was the word she used. And I was like, well, first of all, it's like this big dramatic goodbye. I'm off to marry Jesus. Goodbye. Oh, hi, I'm back now. You know what I mean? Like, um, so first it was like kind of anticlimactic. But it wasn't even just that. It was just like, it just felt like, it just felt like you're here. Oh, here, Jesus. Here is my life. I give it to you. And Jesus is like, smack. Nobody wants your dumb gift of your dumb life, you know. After she left the MCs, she started nursing school, joined a softball team, and spent time with the Catholic Worker Movement, a progressive faith-based group. And she was talking to a friend there one day. And she was like, Kelly, like, I know people who are um, trying to suppress their sexual orientation, and I watch them not be able to love the people around them the way they should because that's where all their energy is going. And I was like, you know what? That's true, and I've seen that a lot, and that's not what I want. Like, if I really believe in love, if I really think that love is something that changes lives and helps people, then I just have to be myself. Okay, so I was raised a strict evangelical Christian, and when I came out to my mom, she ripped up my birth certificate and sent it to me. Uh, yeah, and I was complaining about it to my therapist, and I was like, oh, that was so passive-aggressive, and she's like, no, Kelly, that was aggressive. <laughs> so I took it to the county clerk's office, and he looked at me, and then looked at the pieces, and looked at me, and then looked at the pieces, and he thought for a minute, and he said, we get a lot of this from people who look like you. Uh, which tells you my mom was not as original as she thought she was. My mom would say that that is not what happened. Uh, different narrative. Um... My mom was a dramatic person. You know, it was a very dramatic reaction. Like, okay. Also, even when she sent it to me, I was like, this doesn't, you can send me my birth certificate all you want. It doesn't make me not your kid. You know what I mean? Like, that's not how that works. Uh, you know, and we didn't really have a relationship for a long time. Like, I went long periods of time without seeing her. Um, I think it didn't really even become comedy early in my comedy career because 
it was still so unresolved. I think it was still too raw in me for other people to laugh at it. Kelly met Heather at the Newark Airport Hotel during a queer conference. They both went to Christian high school. They both knew all of the words to the chorus of the trumpet of Jesus. And that was that. They started dating long distance. At the time, Heather was in remission from ovarian cancer. Within the first six months of their dating, it came back. Heather would call Kelly to get through the night, to keep her distracted with stories and jokes until she could take her next dose of a heavy painkiller. It became clear that she was going to die. You know, maybe not right away, but eventually. Like, this wasn't a long-term relationship. You know, and Heather struggled at first. Like, she was like, well, who starts a relationship when they're so late in life? You know, um, it just doesn't seem like it follows the rule book. Like, she... You know, I think she didn't know if I was going to be able to stick it into the end. I knew I was going to be able to stick into the end. I knew what I'd been through, you know. Um, but there was something really beautiful about being able to be the right person at the right time. That was in the same way that like the mission of the charity just felt like, oh, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is, this is, I'm answering this call. I felt like I was answering the call. We kind of try to have a sense of humor about it or in the house. I mean, I'm a stand-up comic and she was a total um, smart-ass. So in between the two of us, like, for example, one day when she was really, she had been on chemo for a long time and she wasn't feeling that well. And I called her from the supermarket and I said, um, is there anything uh, I can bring you? And there's this long silence. And she says, yeah, um, how about a quarter pound of a will to live? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Fine. So I was like, well, if she's going there, I'm going to go there, too. And I was like, oh, honey, you know how it is. I'm at Trader Joe's, and they only had organic, and now, now they're all out. <laughs> so just right back, she came back. She's like, ah, damn, I had a coupon. <laughs> Kelly calls the day Heather died Pudding Day. Heather chose to end her life, surrounded by chosen family, with a lethal dose of medication mixed into a pudding cup. All this time, through the relationship, Heather's illness, nursing school, comedy sets, Kelly's relationship with her mom remained strained, until her stepfather's dementia became worse, and she flew home to help. He was a retired army colonel, and everyone still called him the colonel. Uh, and so most people, when they develop dementia, uh, they forget the names of their kids or where they live or, you know, their most fond childhood memories. That is not what happened to the colonel. The colonel forgot he was a jerk. Uh, I think because he forgot where the scotch was. So I went to my mom's home and helped her set up hospice. And the colonel was lovely to me. He's like, oh, Kelly, I just, I love your, I love your haircut, soldier. I love the ultimate compliment. <laughs> I love your haircut, soldier. That's, oh, man, that's fantastic. Oh. And uh, we thought that he might not make it until Christmas. And he was really so, you know, uh, cognitively impaired at that point that he couldn't even follow a sitcom. So my mom put up the Christmas tree, and he asked her just to turn off the lights, and he just watched the tree. And every so often he would say, that's a heck of a tree, Nance, that's a heck of a tree. And so I would sit with my mom, watch her uh, as she would put on makeup, and I wanted to tell her it was going to be okay, but I knew it wasn't, and so I just sat with her. 
I don't know, something really changed that year. We just talked about our lives and, you know, kind of what was important in life and what wasn't and not having any regrets. And, um, and it healed in a way that I never thought was possible. So the Colonel died a few days before Christmas. And when people came to drop off food and uh, say, you know, send their condolences, my mom's response was, this is my daughter, Kelly. She's also a widow. She lost her spouse as well. What's a moment that happened that you would have never expected to have oh, had with she your mom? Came, um, she came to watch me perform at the Stonewall Inn in June. The story of Kelly's mom at the historic Stonewall Inn in a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, so my mom, nine years I've been performing. She has never seen me perform. You know where my mom wanted to come see me perform? In the middle of June on the 30th anniversary of Stonewall at the Stonewall Inn. (laughs) The gayest thing ever, right? It's the gayest thing I've ever done. Guess who I was opening for? Lenny Breedlove. (laughs) Who's Lenny Breedlove? Performance artist, queer performance artist. Now, you remember Lenny's last show where Lenny, like, had a little stuffed animal. It's like, hi, I identify as an elephant. Hi, I identify as a teddy bear, right? Very cute, very tame. I thought that that's the show that Lenny would be doing. No. no. Oh, no. In the show my mom came to, Lenny walked on the stage wearing nothing but a dick. <laughs> and also, for no apparent reason that I could figure out, there was 20 minutes of Linny peeing into a bucket on stage. Now, if you've ever been upstairs at the Stonewall, you know that the stage is maybe two or three feet from the front row where my mom was sitting. Uh, so I'm sitting in the audience thinking, my mom and Linny Breedlove are having a golden shower scene. 
And then I said the words I have not said before or since. I turned to a friend and I said, could you please get my mom some more wine? (laughs) So, um, we got through that incident more or less okay, but oh, the questions the next day at breakfast. So she's like trying to figure things out, right? So she's like... So there was a woman, a man, no, a woman, no, a woman dressed like a man, sitting on the lap of the woman, the man, no, the woman, dressed like a man. Is that the way it always is? By this time, Kelly had met her partner, Cheryl, a writer and a poet. Cheryl was at the Stonewall performance, too, and Kelly introduced her to her mom. She was like, she's beautiful. And I was like, yeah, I know she's beautiful. (laughs) Um... Yeah. She was like, Kelly, um, in your subculture, and I was like, I didn't even know she knew the word subculture. Uh, in your subculture, uh, are you considered attractive? And I was like, yeah, mom, actually in my subculture, I am considered attractive. There's like some women that want to date a masculine female. Uh, and she was like, oh, I didn't have any idea. And that actually s- just made her so relieved. You know, and mm. I, I think she started thinking me as more her son than her daughter. And I think that helped, too. Um, wow. Yeah. I was curious at that moment at Stonewall, at that performance, if like seeing your mom there and your friends there and your girlfriend there, like all hanging out, having this time. Does that sort of like I mean, when I think back of like you as a teen having these questions about your purpose, you know, that moment where you sort of done in your searching and did you have answers i felt happy for sure i mean i think you know i don't know if anyone's ever done in their searching you know um <laughs> it was a moment who that i felt like a lot of people worked really hard to get to that moment help me get to that moment you know like my mom's gay hairdresser, you know, my mom had been watching Ellen for a long time. Um, you know, uh, Lenny even who like when they saw my mom just gave my mom a big hug, like they'd been waiting their whole lives to hug each other. You know, um, it seemed like there was some people who were interested in me and her being happy and me and her being friends. And that seemed hmm. really nice, you know, and also that she got to experience it. You know, she got to experience what it feels like to be, to be loved by chosen family. And then, unbelievably, Cheryl was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And how did your mom and Cheryl get along? Oh, my my mom loves Cheryl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, when Cheryl uh, started chemo, my mom bought her bunny slippers and, like, fussed over her. And, like, my mom tried really hard to, like, give Cheryl some mom energy, and Cheryl really appreciated that. And I appreciated it. And even my sister was like, weren't you jealous? And I was like... No, in a way, that's, like, perfect because I get to observe that love towards somebody I love, and it's not complicated the way it would be between us, you know. So I actually really appreciate that. Kelly says that whenever there's a tragedy in her life, she does a show. When Cheryl died, she booked a whole Southern comedy tour. I don't know how people get through stuff without having an outlet of writing about it and performing about it and trying to make it funny. I don't really know. You know, it just seems like, wow, I... Seems brave. <laughs> uh, I want to thank um, being 
involved with somebody who has a serious illness is I really feel like it gives you a perspective. Um, it definitely challenges the assumptions that the universe is a good place, right? Definitely challenges those assumptions. Like, you know, like those bumper stickers that say, God is good all the time. I'm like, well, I'll buy the God is good, but I don't know about the all the time part, right? Because some kids get leukemia and some kids get a pony, you know. <laughs> it's okay, you can laugh at it. My therapist totally does. Kelly lives in Brooklyn in an apartment she affectionately calls Queer Study Hall. There's always a revolving door of friends coming through. She's a community school director, and she works part-time as a nurse. And she's developing a new comedy tour, 50 churches in 50 states. As for her faith, Kelly stopped going to church after her time in the Missionaries of Charity. Actually, if you look at the world, it does seem like there is a God, but it seems like God hates us, right? That's what it really looks like. You know, um, the Haiti earthquake and then a cholera epidemic. You know, like, come on. But after a while, she discovered it was actually harder not to be involved in a spiritual practice than it was to do it. Why fight it? So she found a church in New York, a very open church. In fact, she says the pastor once said that even atheists are welcome. And I was like, I think this is my church. The church where they don't care what you believe in. <laughs> but that almost, in a sense, doesn't matter. What matters is like the community and the connection and trying to find meaning, you know? The meaning is, like for me, the meaning is the spirituality, like trying to find meaning in like whatever I experience, like try and convert whatever difficulty it is into something that can help other people. Did you talk about um, your mom's death with her? Did you talk about death with her? Oh, all the fucking time. That's like her favorite subject for the last five years. Kelly's mom died at the end of April. After a year in assisted living and then hospice. She had a form of blood cancer. Kelly flew to Florida to be with her. Her mom didn't ask her to come because, as Kelly says, she's not a complainer. But Kelly went anyway. When we were kids, like, I can remember her being like, don't put me on a machine. And we're like, Mom, we're just going through the McDonald's drive-thru right now. But okay, don't put you on a machine. Got it. And she always said, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of, um, I'm afraid of suffering and I'm afraid of being alone. Every conversation for the last year, she said they shoot horses, don't they? She really was like, she wow. said, I think it made her really, you know, she had a very honest relationship, I think, with God. But, you hmm. know, she always said, like, I just keep asking, why am I still here? Kelly talked to the staff at the assisted living facility, and they'd say things like, I love your mom's laugh. And I just want to tell you this great thing your mom did for me. At one point, even the director of the facility was in tears talking about Kelly's mom. So Kelly had an answer to her mom's question. Uh, I came back and I was like, Mom, like, I, I can't tell you why you were here, but I can tell you. Like, why God gave you this extra year that has been so difficult. But I can tell you that you made people's lives. People at a assisted living facility in Florida in the middle of a pandemic, the epicenter, right? You made their lives easier in some mm. of the, like, mm. the hardest times they will ever imagine. I was like, you changed, like, you brought light 
in this like terrible, difficult year. Hmm. Um, you know, and I was holding her hand when she died, so she got she got what she wanted, you know. So she wasn't alone and she wasn't suffering. So Do you think that your time with the missionaries of charity, all this sitting in silence with others helped you be there for your mom? I mean, sure, you know, you spend years doing that. You develop that capacity. And you develop also that it's not an uncomfortable thing. Like, we could be quiet, you know. Um, Even, like, one of the hospice doctors was like, yeah, usually when you come into a room, people are just, like, and there's an unconscious patient, people are just chattering at them or talking around them, you know, even though we know that hearing is the last to go. And I was like, well, I don't, there's not some secret I need to tell my mom now. Like, we've known she was going to die for a long time, and, and she, uh, like we've said what we needed to say, like what else am I gonna say now, you know? Um, but I think like the comfort with silence is, <laughs> I guess the two things are like, you know, being a nun and also stand-up comedy. Cause definitely stand-up comedy, you know, you have to, when you have to wait for the laugh, that silence feels like a really long time. But if you can hold the silence, you'll get a bigger laugh. So I don't know, I hadn't thought about that before. And so now people ask me where I am theologically. Um, and I don't really worry so much about the afterlife, except for maybe that it just sounds exhausting, like another life after this one. <laughs> I only want that if I can sit on a couch and watch HBO documentaries. Otherwise, I'm out. But, uh, you know, there was an attraction of, like, you know, baby butch nuns and priests and drag and groovy-smelling incense. But also there was, like, the wonder of, like, thinking you knew all the answers and that if everyone thought like you, the world would just be fine. There was a lot of power in that. Um, and sometimes, even now, I'll, uh, I'll hear like a hymn being sung in a Catholic church as I walk by, and I'll get kind of nostalgic. And I'll think, oh, well. And then remember, you know, I was married to that guy, and he was a little bit of a jerk. <laughs> I'm Kelly Dunham. Thank you. This episode was written and produced by Emily Foreman. Our editor is Rob Rosenthal. Andrea Aswahe is our digital producer. Special thanks to Amy Gaines, Sarah Olander, Bethann Macaluso, Travis Dunlap, and consulting producer Mary Johnson. Her memoir, An Unquenchable Thirst, provided inspiration for this series. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert and John Parati at Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell at iHeartRadio. For photos and more details on this series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch. You can reach out via email to theturning at rococopunch.com. I'm Erica Lance. Thanks for listening.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.